Who do we have with us today? I mean, the dream. Oh, we going, we going, we 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 going, we going in, we going in. How deep are we going today? We, we I mean, are going deep. We are going deep in today. Yes. How deep are we going today? We I mean, going the dream. deeper than the ocean floor. The blood of Jesus is an open door. You feel that's, me? Uh, that's how deep we are going. <laughs> I had to bring back classic CHH you lines, feel me? right? We are continuing our series on critical race theory. Yes, we are. We are hoping by God's grace. That this would be one of the places that you can go and engage the subject in honest, scholarly, Christ-centered ways. We will not be bullied or intimidated uh-huh, uh-huh. by detractors and deceptors. Right. You right. can hold on to that word right there. That's a $5 <laughs> word right there. $5 word. Well, That'll get you some lead. Doritos, some coffee cakes, zebra cakes, uh, some Slim Jims, maybe a hot sausage, a pickle, and a, a pickled egg at the corner store. Yeah, you feel me? If you got $5, you and can make it work. If you play your cards right, you might get some now and later. If you play your well. cards now, but listen, if you get now and later's. I'm not responsible for what chewing that flavored rock does to your teeth. Yes, and what that sugar is going to do <laughs> to your body. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. But, yeah, we are excited. I mm -hmm. mean, the dream. Talk to us real quick about our distinguished guest that's joined our conversation today. So we have a guest today, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, oh, boy. I got to give y'all, I got to hit y'all with the pregnant pause. You might want to stretch before you hear this. The guest that we have today, first of all, is a big stepper. A big stepper. Big stepper out here in these the streets. The shoes are large. The shoes are XL. big. Big stepping out here. Yes. Listen, the person that we have coming to you today is a man. The way that he parses and delineates things that are happening in the culture. Wow. Right? It will It will make you say, Papi Dios de bendiga, Papi Dios de bendiga. <laughs> Gracias. So listen, listen the way that this brother excogitates, Ooh. oh, and in the words of E40, shout Cut. out to the shout out to the bay, modulates. Mm. Modulates. Is it in ways that are so sharp that sometimes I get scared that he's gonna cut his own head off? Hey, brother, yes, you know tread light. You better tread, tread light lightly around Bishop. this brother. Yeah. Listen, this man that we are bringing to you today, he's not even a person. He's a people. He's in the a words people. Of, in the words of James, of Brown. James Brown. Now I know it doesn't make any sense, and it didn't make any sense when James Brown said it because he was high on coke when he said it. Me and KB are not high on coke today, ladies and gentlemen. We are high on Jesus. Oh, Lord. In the spirit of God, right? So listen, the brother that I am bringing to you today is a brother that has blessed our soul. This is Dr. Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena. And before, before I even bring him on, let me tell you who Dr. 
Nathan Louise Cartagena is. First of all, he is an assistant professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Facts. In Illinois. Hold on to that. Where he teaches courses on race, justice, and political philosophy. He also serves the, as a faculty advisor for Unidad Cristiana, a student group working to enhance Christian unity and celebrate the Latino, Latina cultures. Ah, man. He holds a BA in philosophy and Christian thought from Grove City College. Boom. A MA in philosophy from Texas A&M University. Boom. Boom. And a PhD in philosophy from Baylor University. So we got all kind of philosophizing going on. We may get into epistemology. We may get into metaphysics. We may get into value theory. We may get into essentialism, existentialism. You don't know. He does it all. We can do it all, baby. <laughs> and he has a forthcoming book on critical race theory with IBP Academic. Ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome to the show a person who is a true theologian for real? Ask me, Hente, for real. Amen. Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena. Make some Welcome noise to the for show. Nathan Make some time. noise for my boy. What's up? God bless you, brother. God bless Yo. you, brother, man. How are you doing? I, I, I'm, I'm hanging in, y'all. I, I got to <laughs> say that that greeting. You, 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 got, you got my heart going pitter-patter. Hey, oh, hey, goodness, that's, the, that's the goal, brother. That's the I, I goal. I appreciate we, the love. I appreciate the love. I, I got to yes, say, man. most of us philosophers don't tend to uh, get much love these days. You I know, see, yeah. uh, Some of us are still uh, are getting that Socratic heat where people are worried wow. that we might be, uh, you know, as it were, corrupting folks by sharing, sharing some good philosophy. But, y'all, I want to make sure that but before I go any further, I acknowledge yeah. I am coming to you from the ancestral lands of the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi in Illinois. Hey. And Amen. it is a joy to uh, be with you all, to talk with you all, to think with you all, and to, to chop it up. Amen. Amen, brother. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I love it. I love that you shared that too, yes. man. Yes, yeah. man. And we are, we're so what well, we we're so glad to have you. Like you said, man, a lot of philosophers are not getting love these days, but we hope that on our podcast they do. That's right. That's, that's right. The, that's that's yeah. the goal, man. For sure. Southside. So before we get into it, man, first before we start, could you share a bit uh with us about yourself, man, and your background? Who is Nathan Cartagena? Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, in a way that reflects both sides of my family, I want to note locations and peoples, locations and peoples. So mm. for my mom's side, uh, her entire family are what in Spanish we call Anglos. They're from the U.S. South. Uh, my mm. mom's family uh, was part of the Jim and Jane Crow era. Uh, ends wow. up that my, my mom's parents leave uh, South Carolina and North Florida to go to Colorado Springs, Colorado. And that'll be important in a minute. I'll explain why. But my mom's entire family was born and raised and habituated by Jim and Jane Crow South. My dad's entire family, they're from Borican or, or Puerto Rico. And uh, it's important to note that Jim and Jane Crow also shapes them. Here's what I mean. Mm, you see, that. the same Supreme Court justices that rule in Plessy versus Ferguson that establish racial apartheid in terms of black-white binary. There was already a racial apartheid in terms of those right. that were seen as white and those that were seen as indigenous. But the same yeah. justice that do that in the insular cases, just a few years later, create Puerto Rico to be a non-white island. Wow. Mm -hmm. So the same justices that engage in the establishment of Jim and Jane Crow that's going to shape my family in South Carolina and Georgia and the hills of Tennessee also end up shaping my family in Puerto Rico. Wow, 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 wow. So this is going to be one of the reasons I'm sure we'll get into it, why I'm interested in things like critical race theory, because it's right. not enough to think about racism in terms of a bias, in terms of mere um, individual attitudes. But we mm -hmm. have to think about the ways in which white supremacy, the ways in which racism shapes 
entire peoples, entire regions. And so, again, if you think about the legal connections, you have mm. you have these justices saying, look, we're we know that we're a white empire. So you got modes of imperialism that are going to be connected to the conquest of Puerto Rico. And yeah, mm. we, look, these these Puerto Ricans, they're not white. So we we got to keep them at an arm's length at the very least. Right. And so it ends up that the decision of Plessy B. Ferguson and the justices shape both of my families. Now, mm. a little bit more. My mom's family largely leaves uh, my, 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 my mama, so grandma and my, and my grandpa, they, they leave the South uh, and head to Colorado in part because there were some serious problems with uh, domestic abuse at my mom's side of the family. Gotcha. And, and my yeah. mom was like, we, we, mm. we got to get out. Let's, let's go to Colorado. What ends up that my dad's side of the family, as an effort to try to make it on the island, they join my, my abuelo joins the military. He ends mm. up joining the Air Force. And as he's in the Air Force, my dad ends up becoming interested in joining the Air Force. And frankly, wow. military service is one of the main ways in which people in Puerto Rico get out of things like generational poverty. Yeah. Right. So my my dad's interested in it. He ends up applying and gets into the Air Force Academy. And lo and behold, that's where my parents meet because the Air Force Academy is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So you get all sorts of interesting dynamics with things like Jim and Jane Crow and forms of legal racial apartheid sure. shaping yeah. my family. But you also get various forms of imperialism, militarism shaping my family. So mm. as we say in Spanish, it's complicado, hermanos. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. Now, yeah, now one more good. thing about about myself uh, in terms yeah, of land. Time, and, then, and then I'm happy to kick it to discussions about uh, yeah. how it was uh, that the Lord grabbed me, we might say. Uh, so uh, because of my dad's military service, I was actually born in South Carolina. I was born on a Navy base in Charleston, South Carolina. And I, this always is striking to me, too, because one of the most famous senators of South Carolina, maybe we should also say infamous, is John C. Calhoun. Mm. And as you all know, John, John C. Calhoun was like, look, we're going to maintain this slaveocracy," And he was also deeply concerned when the United States engaged in an unjust war against Mexico. Why? Because he was concerned about incorporating lands and assimilating peoples. Mm. And Calhoun says, look, we know that this is a white government. We know this is a government for whites, by whites. This place is supposed to be for white people. That's why we're that's why we're kicking all these indigenous peoples out. So what are we doing mm -hmm. trying to bring in these what he would call mongrel people, these mixed race mm. people? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Latinos and Latinas from Mexico. And he says, we got We got to keep them at bay. So it's always striking me to think about not only do we have Jim and Jane Crow shaping both sides of my family, but but one of the most famous senators of the state that I was born in would never have loved me being born in that state. He'd be oh, like, how right. did we go so wrong? <laughs> so, so that what happened? So the what are y'all doing? Right? <laughs> you <laughs> lost exactly it. Right. That's exactly right. But it ends up that um, my dad goes from active duty into the reserves. And so we move into what's known in, in military speak as the civilian sector. My dad works as an environmental engineer for several power plants. Uh, both, most of them are up in, in, in New York State. Um, and right. so we moved from South Carolina to Philly. We lived in Philly for about a year. And then to New Jersey, uh, where I lived right next to Rutgers University, very close to New Brunswick. I got to say, I, I missed the barbershops there. Those were good times. Hey, hey, yeah, Those were good times. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah, so Sam's I was, I was, working. <laughs> listen, brother, especially there are times where, I don't know, I, I, I just try to stay on the cheap. So I got my own clippers. They're not the best. They're not the best. I, I mean, you, I feel you. It's not as fresh as it should be. Okay, I'll acknowledge it. It's not as fresh as it should be. And, 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 and y'all don't even want to see the pictures when I try to do my own fades. Oh, my oh, goodness. No. <laughs> 
That's why you got to get a license for that. <laughs> Brother, you need a license. That's right. There yeah, are exactly. licenses to carry all sorts of things, right? I mean, goodness, y'all. Anyway, so uh, growing up in New Jersey was very formative, too, because the what are known as racialization practices, how people see one another are so different than, mm-hmm, for example, right. in South Carolina. So one of the things, let's go back to Puerto Rico. One of the things that the United States ends up doing is engaging what's known as Operation Bootstrap. So this Mm. is an effort by the federal government to encourage Puerto Ricans to come to the mainland and work, especially commercial jobs. And most Puerto Ricans end up settling in New York, Chicago, Detroit, those places. Because of that, though, especially in New York, a lot of Puerto Ricans end up growing in solidarity with African-Americans because Mm. they're being racialized as non-white. African-Americans are clearly being racialized as non-white. And frequently what happens is Puerto Ricans become racialized as black and they'll frequently Mm. accept it because they know there's a binary. There are two options. You're either white or you're black. And they're saying, well, Mm. we're not we're not white, even though many of them are going to try to acquire whiteness and want to have some of the benefits that would come with being white. Like, well, we're not going to be seen as white because it's not just about our choices. It's about how other people are seeing us. So they'll embrace being racialized as black. And this Mm. matters because when I'm growing up in New Jersey, I'm getting racialized as black all the time. I'm getting racialized as black by racialized white folks. I'm getting racialized as black by Latino and Latinas. I'm getting racialized Mm. as black by black folks. I'm like, what in the world? And I have people (laughs) hurling the N word at me both negatively but also there's a way to say, like, hey, no, you're down with us. It's OK. Yeah. Right. 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 And I was like, all right, I see. I see what's going on. And I I, vi- I vividly remember I was so perplexed by these racialization patterns. My, my Anglo mom didn't understand them. My, my Puerto Rican dad didn't understand them. Uh, and so I remember talking to one of my friends. He, he's African-American Jamaican. And his name was Thomas. I said, Thomas, I don't know what in the world I am. I mean, <laughs> it's just it's so confusing to me. And he right. to me, he's like, Nate, what is wrong with you? It's not that complicated. You're yeah. black. You're Puerto Rican. You're black. Rican. That's, 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 exactly that's how it is. I would have said the like, exact same thing to you. I said, this is not complicated at all. You <laughs> are a Negro. <laughs> pretty much. It's pretty much. I'm like, well, it does make a lot of sense about how people are speaking to me. And, yeah, right. and this part was key, too. When I was in sixth grade, I was in my first ever honors class and I'm sitting up in the very front row. Now, at this point, I don't know how racial surveillance works. So mm. I, I'm not I'm not questioning why. Even though we're not in alphabetical order, I'm sitting right in front of the teacher's podium. Mm. I'm in this, uh, again, first ever English honors class. I'm sitting in the class. We're in week one. And the teacher starts writing on the chalkboard. I'm frantically taking notes because I want to do as well as I can. Mm. And in the middle of taking notes, this teacher, she calls me out. She says, Nathan, are you paying attention? I was like, Yes, ma'am. Now I got three pages uh, of notes. I, <laughs> let me let me tell you, brother. And notice, notice my my mom's southern influence is there. It's like, yes, ma'am. Right. I, I'm I'm doing the mammon. Right, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to make sure I can stay in this class. Well, right. she tears into me and says that I'm not paying attention. That's the problem with me. I never pay attention. And I'm like, where is this coming from? And in the front of the whole class, she ends up saying, "You're only here for racial diversity numbers." And it's my what? responsibility to get you out of this class. Oh, no, you didn't. Now, you got to remember, like, my, so there's some assimilation problems on my dad's side of the family. Efforts right. to, 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 as it were, embrace Anglo-U.S. whiteness in varying ways. And then on my mom's side of the family, you got folks born and raised in Jim and Jane Crow South or at least shaped by that culture. So my mom's not getting this. And I'm going, what in the world? So wow. I'm catching a lot of forms of racism, even from instructors. And as I saw that, I'm looking around the class going, you know, this has not happened to any of my my Asian colleagues. Mm -hmm. And frankly, 
Like there, there was there was one there was one African American sister in the class. This wasn't happening to her. I was like, what is this distinctive thing about being Puerto Rican that's causing right. so many problems? And it took me a while before I was able to get some answers to that to that question. Wow. And frankly, the answers are going to come in a way that's going to help to explain why I'm interested in critical race theory. Uh, but mm. yeah, so that's a little bit about me, my family, some of the experiences I had Man, uh, growing up yeah. in New Jersey. Uh, and I'm happy to to go in whatever directions y'all want to. Yeah, no, that's powerful, man. Really good. I I think uh, having that the backdrop of 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 these kind of two realities mm-hmm. uh, helps us understand uh, why you have, by God's grace, leaned into understanding the the complexities of how race works in society and yeah. the need for us to understand um, racialization, and then it also brings you into disciplines like critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Before I ask you about that, I did just because we got you want to uh, ask you about um, Puerto Rico a little bit. Oh, yeah. So obviously Puerto Rico has been, uh, you know, on the main stage, given particularly what the, the moments with the, uh, the, the, the last administration, administration yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Donald Trump shooting basketball, Paper towels. Paper towels like basketballs, you know, at, you know, people. And then the way it was covered, unless you had your ear to people on the island and officials on the island, you would think that it wasn't that bad. Right. Like the the natural disaster was, you know, like, you know, anything that we typically go through. You know, we may have to stay indoors. Or or, almost like what happens in Florida during hurricane season. Yes, it's exactly what what I'm making it sound like, and that's not what it was at all. We've all all been through hurricanes. Right, right. You know, a chair is knocked over in your front yard. (laughs) But then when we had Rafi uh, is a a friend of our community, a dude that's in our community, um, he went to Puerto Rico and came back with a much different report, which often – Oftentimes for us, when that happens, somebody goes to the place and comes back and says, you need to lean deeper into this. Right. And we have a couple that came from Puerto Rico. That's right. And, that was displaced in, in our church. That's right. right. Yeah. And what we found is that thousands, of, hundreds of people were dead and that they were uncovering yeah. uh, after this natural disaster. They were they were uncovering bodies. And then the support from the U.S. was uh, finicky and, and, and stifled and lackluster, to say the least. Yeah. You talked about the racialization thing. And yeah. uh, and its impact even in Puerto Rico, it is shocking to people to hear because it was shocking to me that there were efforts to try to sterilize the women <laughs> in oh, yes. Puerto Rico not a long time ago, right, right, nope. but recently, so that they would begin to sort of ethnically cleanse the island, and that oh, there's yeah. been all these efforts to to. Uh, I remember um, I was reading about. I believe it was in the 60s where they were trying to make Spanish illegal in Puerto Rico where you could yeah. only speak English. So I was wondering if you could also, that's not what we're here to talk about, but I, I, I just can't pass up the, yeah. the, the opportunity for you to speak to yeah. some of the, our, our sister, which is what Puerto Rico is and the ways that that has been mismanaged and mistreated by the, you know, the brother state. So go, go ahead. Yeah, brothers. Well, I'm happy to talk about mi gente uh, from 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 Borican. So uh, th- there's much to say. I'll, I'll try to to streamline the presentation because I also know that most people are just not familiar with Puerto Rico. Sure, I mean, true, true, even President true. Trump think about that. He's like, oh, wait, Puerto Rico is connected to the United States in response to Hurricane Maria. You're like, how in the world can a sitting president not know? But yeah, but there are actually a lot of reasons. 
Go ahead, yeah, brother. Yeah, when, when they did a study, they found out that a lot of Americans didn't know. Yes. That's like, who's the president of Puerto Rico? <laughs> like, it was crazy. Yeah, but go at, ahead. At Sorry, that brother. point, President Trump. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, 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 let's get into some of these, some of these details. So, a, a nice contrast for you. When, when the United States enters into a treaty with Mexico, it's called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 1848. They say, okay, everybody that has just been conquered in these lands that we're going to um, annex to ourselves, mm. they will eventually become citizens. We promise that. So the question ends up being at, at what speed will they become mm. citizens? And mm. you see that they're very concerned, uh, uh, senators in particular, about ensuring that there's enough whiteness in places like New Mexico, there's enough Anglonization, as they call it. So is Anglo enough uh, before the place can become a state? So New Mexico isn't a state until wow. 1912 because the federal government doesn't deem the place white enough, Anglicized enough before it can become uh, a state. But wow. remember, the promise was always held out. Fast forward to the treaty between the U.S. and Spain. The, that treaty, Treaty of Paris in 1898, never promises citizenship to Puerto Ricans. Mm. It says that'll be up to Congress to decide. Uh, well, here's one of the reasons that's important, because the acquisition of Puerto Rico was part of a broader imperial project, especially by people like Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, at this yeah. point, he wasn't president, becomes president. But but this is how consumed Roosevelt was with acquiring Puerto Rico. Uh, mm. he, he actually leaves a position and starts this all-volunteer force that ends up being known for as you know, the Rough Riders on, on San Juan Hill and all that, so wow. that he can ensure we get Puerto Rico. And he's mm. writing to senators saying, do not seal the deal with Spain until we have Puerto Rico. Wow. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. One, of course, is huge economic advantages that would come with right. having Puerto or, Rico. Sure. Also, military advantages. Right. Those military and economic advantages are connected to having access to the Panama Canal. So mm -hmm. it's all sorts of complicating, uh, complicated, important factors that play a role. But what you find is that even though Puerto Rico gets brought in, you don't end up getting citizenship for, for anybody uh, in, in Puerto Rico until 1917, which is the Jones Act, the passing of mm -hmm. the Jones Act. Now, that's importantly connected to the United States' entrance into World War I. And there ah. are questions about whether or not Puerto Ricans will willingly serve, even though they can be conscripted, will they willingly serve in the United States military if they're not citizens? Mm -hmm. So there's a connection between the granting of citizenship and U.S. interests into World War I, which gets back to some yeah. of the things that you were saying, Armando KB, about, about modes of exploitation uh, of yeah. those that are going to be deemed non-white that are, that are all part of, uh, of Puerto Rico. But mm -hmm. I also want to stress this, even though Puerto Ricans receive citizenship, the senators are clear when they grant when they pass this law, like, oh, but it's not it's not citizenship in the way that you have it on what in, in, in Puerto Rico we'd call the mainland. So mm -hmm. a lot of Puerto Ricans will distinguish between the island and the mainland, yeah. right. um, which would be the contiguous United States. So they said, whoa, 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 no, it's not like that because they're going to be citizens. But in so far as you live on the island, you will have taxation without representation. So Puerto Ricans cannot vote for a single member of Congress, whether it's the House. Wow or the Senate. They can't vote for their president. They can't vote for who the vice president would be, of course, right. because that's how the voting works. So they have no say, no political yeah. say. Um, there is a person that sits in Congress that you know, has no vote and is supposed to be able to be some kind of like, I don't know, Frank is like a statue. You, you can say what you want, but it's not going to have any influence. Um, but, but this is so striking because of how the United States likes to remember itself. 
as one of the reasons we had a revolution is because how dare we have taxation without representation? And that's what I, and we do the same thing to Puerto Rico. Say it all the time. Right Correct. now, the very thing that we went over, the, the, the very thing that we, you know, did a revolution over and we complain, no taxation without representation in Congress. Then we turn around and we're doing the same thing to Puerto Rico. Correct. And you have to see it's connected to these visions of the United States as a white empire. Because mm. if you grant, if you grant, thicker senses of citizenship to those you're deeming non-white in Puerto Rico. Well, guess what? They can have more influence mm, and right. you'll owe them more things in terms of healthcare right. and so forth, which one of the reasons bluntly why d- despite the most recent um, election results from Puerto Rico, where, where more people voted for, for Puerto Rico to become a state than, than, than to, to go independent. I don't really expect that's going to go very far anytime soon. And the main mm. reason is those, that desire is going to get played out between battles that the Democrats and the Republicans are having. Yeah. So, you know, once once if Puerto Rico becomes a state, not only are you going to have to now, as the United States, provide millions more dollars in things like health care, for example, and maintenance of the infrastructure. You don't have to do that insofar as you have Puerto Rico as, frankly, it's a colony. And a lot of mm. uh, a lot of scholars Dang. of Puerto Rico are, are right to say Puerto Rico is, is is today the oldest colony in the world. Wow. It's the oldest colony in the world. Now, yes, you know, in the United States, we're going to say, oh, it's a commonwealth. No, all of the laws regulate it so that it's a colony. And and if once you're reading, uh, especially things what's known as like um, Lat crit, so Latino yeah. uh, critical mm-hmm. theories uh, of, of race scholarship, like no, 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 this is we all can tell this is a colony. Again, sure. basic things like look, lack of representation. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, when you know that it's going to change the dynamics in the House and the Senate, so you get two senators and probably somewhere between four or five representatives of Puerto Rico, and right. you know that it's very likely that Puerto Ricans are going to vote Democrat uh, yep. because of how, how things have been going, especially with the Trump presidency. Oh, my goodness, that's just tremendous political power. And like, no, 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 we're not we're not going to have that And you know, shaping of, of Supreme Court justices, et cetera. So right. I, I, I note this, too, because there's a this gets to something that, that Derek Bell, who's the, critter, uh, the one of the founders of critical race theory, will talk about in terms of an interest convergence. So what kinds <laughs> of rights, what kinds of privileges yep. you get if you're on the island are all determined by what the majority are going yeah. to determine is, is safe. Like, OK, again, back to what those those, those Supreme Court justices were saying in this case, it's like, well, we'll let you in insofar as it's not going to jeopardize the empire. But insofar right. as we think, yeah. it, well, eh, you know, it's nice to visit. For a vacation, right. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that's mainly what you're going to be. Yeah, right. that that it, it's crazy that you said that because when you were talking, I I look over to KB and I glance and I said interest convergence, right? <laughs> yeah, because that's, right. that's what it, even when you think about okay, man, are are we going to have Puerto Ricans actually fighting a war if they don't get citizenship? Yep. How do we do? How do we do that? Okay, well we're gonna they're gonna get citizenship, but not like citizenship. Yeah, but not citizenship. Right? So not we're, we're, we're only making this perceived progress if there's some type of benefit Correct. that we also get from this. Right, right, right. And right. then also still be able to keep people like at distance at you know, at bay. And it's kind of like a, uh, it's not really like substantive equality. It's kind of just like a formal equality. It looks like equality, like in form, but not in function. Right. right? right, right. And so, and, and, and so that's why I think, I actually think it's a good way into what you were, I think where you're already going into critical race theory, because when I hear you talk about, man, when I hear you talk about everything that is happening with the United States and Puerto Rico, there's this whole history yeah. behind yeah. what is happening and reasons why it's happening, right? And, and, and yeah. can Go I ahead. just add to that and say that can also be mapped to all sorts of experiences around the world. Man. Around the world, especially, I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, a very similar thing happened in Hawaii. Right. A- a- almost, yes. almost blow for blow, take for take, 
This is the exact yep. same thing. Right. There's economic and military mm-hmm. advantage right. of us annexing this place to ourselves. Yep. There was yep. a there was a period of time where peace was enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But when the interest, in fact, when I was reading about this, the word that I saw used the most by those trying to justify basically taking over the uh, the 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 uh, the whole country of Hawaii through you know basically genocide was the word interest right american interest right we have to protect our interests yes and so we we see that here we see that happening in various places alaska right folks can argue that 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 there's some of that happening with our uh, relationship to, with israel with israel yeah. so there's the, the, what I, I just want to say before you continue one of the things that is so encouraging about having different voices joining this conversation is that it's helping all of us to not make the location of all talk about uh, critical theory or critical race theory or even all things of equality to not just locate them between black and white people in the South. Right, the, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Right. But th- there actually is a global experience happening with the whole concept of 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 westernization yes um and and the aspects of racial superiority so anyways go ahead i just wanted to i think that you're right and i think that he highlights that. that and i also think that it shows us even when you mention the supreme court justices when we're talking about united states of puerto rico and when you're talking about the Supreme Court justices in the South, when you were talking about your parents, yep. it shows that what has what is happening racially is not just some kind of hyper individualistic action by some individuals, no. but that this has happened a lot. Also, yep. uh, uh, I would even say mainly through law, which is yep. why when people are talking about critical race theory and they don't talk about critical legal uh, mm-hmm. studies and CLS and Derek Bell, Alan Freeman, we can yep. kind of get lost in this. So how... Like when we when we look at all of what we're talking about, where does critical race theory come in? Why is it important for yeah. us to understand what is happening, and where does that where does that come in? You see yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Let, let, let me try to make this a, a real personal response. Yeah. Mm. So let, let's start here. Go back to the insular cases. Right. The insular cases determine that the that Puerto Rico is foreign, but in a domestic sense. Hmm. Now, that's the kind of that's the kind of lunacy you get when you know that white supremacy is driving the ship. Right. What <laughs> right? does that even mean? What? Now, it's craziness. Here's another thing, though. That echoes what Chief Justice John Marshall back in the early 19th century says about indigenous communities. He says they are domestic dependent nations. Hmm. And you go, what in the world does it mean for, for any group to be a domestic dependent nation? Right. I'm getting at this because see how law this is exactly what. CRT scholar Kenneth Noon talks about law serves to organize white societies. Now, of course, law right. serves to organize all societies. That's true. Mm-hmm. But when you intentionally design your country to be a pigmentocracy, a white empire, people like Thomas Jefferson are writing to British diplomats saying this is this is who we are. Of course, this is who we mm. are. You're going to create laws to police whiteness in varying ways. Right. right? So mm. you're going to have slave codes, for example. You're going to have right. certain laws about what kind of treaties could we enter into for indigenous peoples? How do we keep them out? Et cetera, et cetera. OK, again, you fast forward to the end of the 19th century. Same sorts of things going on with, with, with Puerto Rico and Listen, I, I got to go in on this, too, because some people are like, oh, it's just it's just the Republicans. But but don't forget, during his presidency, oh. President Barack Obama's like, oh, yeah, Puerto Rico. That's right. They're, they're foreign, but in a domestic sense. And I was like, I mean, you, you in the sauce, too, huh? Come on, bro. <laughs> Come right. Drink right? And, foreign and foreign in domestic sense. That's right. And of course, it's during his presidency <laughs> when we get this huge housing crisis. Right. That he's he refuses to engage in certain kinds of race conscious care for the black community that's being devastated 
by this mm. housing crash, right? So, mm, mm, mm. so I say this because we we can't act like um, certain forms of what's known as neoliberal politics are just these great, great um, liberating devices. No, and it doesn't always matter what somebody's skin color is going to be. For example, you got to ask questions about well, what are your commitments? Who are you really drawn from, etc. Now here, now I want to transition from that point to how it works for my family. So I, I really want to highlight that part of what I've revealed so far is I became interested in critical race theory as a mode of research to help me to understand myself. But mm. one, one key person that I haven't talked enough about yet is my mama. So, and I got the tissues cause this is always hard. So yeah. my, my mom's mom, my mama, my grandma was, she, she loved me something fierce. She mm. loved me something fierce, but remember she was born and raised in Jim and Jane Crow, South Carolina. So she had deeply imbibed not just ideologies of white supremacy, but she had what I will call vices of racism, mm. right? certain ways that she could see, certain ways that she couldn't see. Mm. Right. And one of the recurring things that came up in our relationship is that certain forms of intimacy that we should have been able to have as, as mamma to, to, to grandson, we couldn't have because racism and white supremacy got in the way. Mm. And so there were times, for example, I vividly remember I knocking on my, my, my mom, my mom was visiting us in New Jersey. And I'm knocking on her door. Hold on, let me get these off just in case. So I'm knocking yeah, on the door. Take your time, and uh, and I was like, Mama, did you call? And she said, Yeah, I called you. Come on in, come on in, honey. Always like that. Always, yeah. honey. Always sweetheart. And I said, Yeah, what is it? Uh, what is it, Grandma? And she said, I'm really concerned about how many black friends you have. And I I mean, y'all, the truth is, I just it, I just started shutting down. I was like, wait, what what? What kind of conversation we have? And she starts yeah. trying to explain to me, well, it seems the scriptures are saying that different sorts of people need to be segregated. And it's just going on and on. And she's trying to unpack mm. things from the Mosaic Covenant. And I'm just sitting there going, what? Mm. Now, one of the things I didn't know is, uh, and she told me much later, is not only, of course, is she born and raised in Jim and Jane Crow South, not only is that what's shaping her family, but about a week to two weeks after my parents got married, some of her family members call her up and say, uh, my grandma's name was Elizabeth. They say, Elizabeth, when, when are, when are, when is uh, Renee, my mom and Orlando, my dad, when, when are they going to get divorced? And, and my mom was like, what? And they're like, well, we see the size of Orlando's nose and the size of his lips. So clearly he's got to have some kind of black ancestry. We know that black people can't be marrying white people. So when are they going to get divorced? So wow. there was some serious familial trauma bound up with visions of white supremacy that at times would come out in the conversations right. my mamma would have with me. Wow. And I was just like, what is going on? Like, I'm like, oh, how, why are you so concerned about my, my having black friends? And I, I end up leaving the room. I, I don't even remember much of the rest of the conversation because mm, it was just sure. like, I, I'd start going glaze over like, what? Right. And I remember going into my room and I started praying. I was like, Lord, what in the world? Here's this woman that I love tremendously, that I know loves yeah. me tremendously, but she cannot see me. She can't see my friends. She can't love us and importance for who we are, what our histories mm. are and what our people's histories are. And so that began about a 20 year Powerful. process of, of wow. praying for Mama, trying to talk with Mama. And y'all, the truth is that many times it was brutal. Uh, and in mm. fact, um, we fast forward probably about 10 years after that conversation, I was down in South Carolina visiting her. And uh, I, I've written about this for a group called World Outspoken. They're a group that's doing some great stuff for, for Latinos and Latinas um, in, in the church, not just in the United States, but especially in the United States. Mm. Uh, but but Mama and I, were on a walk. We're, we're talking, having a great time as we usually would. We lost track of time. So we both start to get thirsty. I didn't bring any water. She didn't bring any water. I said, well, 
man, but don't don't worry. I see that there's a there's a gas station just down the road. All, uh, let's we can get water there. And she's like, no, no, we can't. That's a black gas station. You got to remember, I spent most of my time in New Jersey. I'm like, a black gas station? What in the world? Oh, that's right. right. We're in the south. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, it, it, so so you know, there there are as it were these kind of like white equivalents to the Green Book, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, right, no, you don't right. go there. You go here. Uh, so I, I told my man, I said, well, don't, don't don't worry about that. I'm Puerto Rican, which means I'm black, and everybody at that gas station will know that. So I'll go and get us some water. You just stay here since you're white. And she tore into me, y'all. She's like, who's been telling you you're black? I can't believe this nonsense. What are they teaching mm. you up in the North? So forth and so on. And I'm again mm. undone. Because at that point, we have, for me, uh, very difficult problems relating to certain Latinos and Latinas because my, my dad didn't pass down Spanish. Mm. He didn't pass down Spanish. And there are, there are racialization tests within racialized minority communities to see, like, okay, are you really one of us? Are you going to pass the purity test? It's what I call whiteness yeah, right. of another color. Right. Are you really yep. going to pass the purity test or not? So a lot of times mm. people are like, nope, you you don't have good enough Spanish. You talk like you're you're an Anglo or a gringo. Yeah. And I'm getting I'm catching all sorts of hell from from some of my racialized white colleagues and instructors. And so mm -hmm. I, for me, because of the embrace that I was getting, especially from African-Americans and I'm getting racialized as black, I'm like, no, I, I finally have a mode of belonging. Right. And. To hear mamas just tear into me, I said, like, "This is craziness." Yeah, right, so right. I started asking deeper questions, like, "Wait a second, like, yes, this is painful, but how in the world did we get to this point? Mm -hmm. How am I getting racialized in these ways? How did Mama have pastors, family members, etc., teaching her, frankly, discipling her, forming her into white supremacy? Mm. What all was going on?" So. I'm trying to find answers to this, but not having a lot of success, if I'm honest. Even though I grew up in a conservative Baptist church, it was it was multi-ethnic slash multi-racialized in terms of the congregants. Mm. But if, there, there wasn't much uh, racialized diversity at all in terms of, of the leadership. So many, many discussions that we had didn't address the kinds of questions that I'm having about being racialized as, as black, Latino, et cetera. And, and mm. It's also true that there were times where these there'd be flare ups of white supremacy. So, sure, many people in that church love me. And I want to make sure I make that clear. Many did. Amen. But there were Amen. times we are at a summer camp and I'm noticing that me and some of our racialized and, and some racialized minority sisters are getting extra surveillance. Mm. And I remember going to one of the leaders. I said, why? Why are people watching us so much more carefully? And, and this leader says, well, because some people need more watching. Hold up. And I was like, oh, and I remember we were. In a, we were doing a Sunday school class and we were talking about apologetics and the ways in which the, the Christian faith changes you. And here's the yeah. example. Imagine you're walking home and it's dark at night and a group of black men come towards you. Right. So the, the, playing on fears about black males. And then wow. but what happens if you find out they're just leaving a Bible study? Right. So you get to say. This, this Christianity oh, civilization is going to save complex. Oh, yeah. oh y'all. <laughs> this is the kind of, these are the kind of conversations we had. I'm going, what? And I also remember we, they had, they had the, the, the music worship wars at, the, at this church. Uh, and there was one, there was one person who again had been in many ways, very good to me, but he says, we should never have drums because drums come from Africa. And anytime you play a drum, you're participating in demonic activity like they do in Africa. And I'm like, what in the world? So again, brothers, I'm trying to understand 
all I mean, these the whole crazy continent, my, the whole continent demonic. <laughs> the whole continent. <laughs> Let's not get into to, to the ways in which people don't recognize that Africa is a continent. They think it's just one continent. Yeah, right, you know, right, we, right. We're, still in, we're still facing that, right? <laughs> but uh, so I'm, I'm trying to understand these things. And now we got to fast forward to when I'm in Texas A&M. So I don't get much help when I'm at, when I'm at Grove City thinking through race race questions. Not at all. I don't get much help thinking about white supremacy. In fact, one professor I had, uh, he championed the lost cause narrative. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no yeah. Years for that, man. Me either. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I didn't either. So, I mean, I don't know if this was the wisest thing, but I decided to write a paper on Malcolm X in his class. <laughs> so, I mean, it shows you. It shows That's what you, I would have uh, did, too. Sound like oh, me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, 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 I, I ended up doing all right on the paper, but that but was say, a risk. <laughs> that was a risk. But, but one of the things that was good about being at Grove City is I did have people that, that, that they stressed one of our goals is for you to be what's known as an autodidact, a self-teacher. Mm-hmm. Right. We yes. want you to, a liberal arts education, they said, is the sort of thing that should help you and Grove City Champions itself as being a place where you can get a liberal arts education to evaluate your perspective from a range of not only contemporary perspectives, but historical perspectives. Right. Yeah. And we want you to be able to learn how to, 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 as it were, gain a profound understanding of various literatures. Right. So I, I did leave Grove City equipped with that. I'm very grateful for that. I also Bring left that. it with, a, so. with a, an even deeper love for the church and a desire to be what you'll, what you'll see me talking about on things like Twitter, to be a churchman. I really love right. the church. Part of that's mm. connected to what in Spanish we call an abuelita theology. So but my mama, my abuela, mm. my bisabuela, which is great grandma, they're all like, you got to love the church. You got to stay connected to the church. I mean, goodness, y'all. I'm telling you, I'm, when I'm in graduate school, they're calling, Nathan? Are you attending church? Are you, yeah. you know what? Put your supposed on the phone. <laughs> nice. you, we we want to make sure you're telling us the truth. Right, right. So, so again, that's what I'm getting from Grove City. But I get to Texas A&M, and y'all, I, at this point, I was I had initially thought about going into pastoral ministry, but I was involved in a church plant, and 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 my with my wife, we're like, no, no, we don't think that that's what God's calling us yeah. to. Yeah. We do think that God's, God's given me teaching gifts. I want to be a teacher. And I had a number of mentors saying, you should go into philosophy. Well, I studied philosophy, yes, at Grove City, but I wasn't thinking I was going to be a professor of philosophy. So I studied it differently. I was studying it as preparation to go to seminary. Yeah. So I'm at Texas A&M. I'm at this departmental potluck. And I'm like, what in the world am I doing here? It's me and me as both. And we're like, what in the world? And it ends up that across the room is Dr. Tommy J. Curry who's now the, okay. he, he's founded the Black Male Study Institute at Edinburgh, Scotland. Mm-hmm. But, but he can see me looking like I'm a fish out of water. He comes over mm-hmm. and he greets me and we start talking and, and, his, and his wife joins uh, Dr. Gwinnetta Curry and, and they start talking to us. And, and the, it ends up that Dr. Curry says, you know, I think, I think you would enjoy learning about critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Curry was a disciple of Derek Bell. They corresponded for years. Yeah. Um, and so, I kind of, in some sense, come from like the Derek Bell tree, as it were. Right. So right, yeah. Bell shapes Curry. Curry introduces me to CRT. But even even at this point in time, this is about 2011. Yeah. Dr. Curry says, be careful about what you read in CRT because the field's already become gentrified. Mm. He said, so go to these texts because this is real CRT. Stay away from these other texts because that's not CRT. And so it ends up because of that conversation. I start reading CRT and I go, whoa, a whole lot of stuff is clicking together. Right. And so I keep reading, I keep studying as an effort to understand myself, understand my family from Puerto Rico, understand US Puerto Rico legal dynamics, understand how is it that Jim and Jane Crow got 
up and running? And then how does it shape people like Mama, extended family members, et cetera? So it's all profoundly personal for me. That doesn't mm. mean, for example, that I endorse every every theory that any that, that you're going to get from critical race theory. And that's impossible because critical race theorists disagree on things. I mean, they contradict one another. That's right. Right. Points, right? And so as I tell people, critical race theory is a legal movement that houses competing traditions. Mm-hmm. And within those traditions, you're going to have competing theories. But, right. You know, especially Christians, they should be all sorts of familiar with this. Like, just think about Protestantism in general. Okay, Protestantism right. holds a whole lot of groups. Right. And right. those groups, they're competing. And even right. within those groups, there are a lot of competing ideas. You know, think right. about think about U.S. Baptists, for example. And let's let's even think about those that are like in the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. Right. You're going to have some that are going to have a certain vision of free will and Calvinism, mm. and some that are going to have a very different vision of free exactly. will and Calvinism. And they're both in the same convention. And sometimes right, right, right. they're worshiping right next to each other, you know, pre-pandemic on the same pew. Like, right. yeah. It's that level of diversity. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to understand that level of diversity and a way to understand my family um, and myself. And I found it tremendously helpful. But mm. I also want to say this. It, the more I thought about my experiences, the more I thought about what I was learning through CRT, the more I became driven to answer the following question. Mm. What does... What does sanctification look like in a racialized world? Mm. In a racialized world. And here's why I'm stressing that. Because racialization practices don't get up and running until the 15th century. Mm. And they're connected to the expansion of European colonialism. Yes. Right. So you don't have racialization practices in, in you know, the 13th century and the 12th century. And you can go all the way back, right? No, yes, you have other ways of you have other ways of othering. You have other right, ways right. of establishing power dynamics. Right. In the city of God, Augustine talks about how look, across human beings, this is what you're gonna find a desire to dominate. Yeah. Right. So it's, I I have some colleagues who are like, we don't need we don't need Marx. We we got Augustine. I'm like, well, I mean, look, Augustine's, the, the, you, you're on to this point about oppression and domination, Augustine. That's true. But also don't forget, like, Augustine's not going to be offering any critiques of capitalism because the thing doesn't exist yet. Yeah, so yeah, you got to yeah, ask exactly, questions about, right. okay, how how could we learn from Augustine? What is there to learn from Marx? And these are sorts of questions that somebody like Du Bois would be asking, for example. Right. Um, but but yeah, so as, as, I'm, as I'm paying closer attention to these practices, Again, I ask, how should sanctification look in a racialized world? And that's one of the reasons why I'll talk about things like godly race consciousness, where we recognize how race conscious laws, for example, shape peoples and lands and practices. And here's another thing that's so important. They shape our discipleship. This is what I saw with Mamaw. This is what I saw with myself. This is what I see with family members down in Puerto Rico. So often the, the answer to the question why is it that we don't have more integrated congregations? Isn't isn't because of you know lack of desire for some uh, in terms of like well let's let's be more with the racialized other, but it's in mm. fact because of racist laws that set up segregation so that yes. you all live over here, we all live over there, we got yes. our parish or our exactly. congregation, and the two shall never meet, right? Right. And when you have certain modes of education too, I, I, like I like I said I, at Grove City, I didn't learn much at all about white supremacy. So think about this. If I go from Grove City, I'm not learning much. Most of my childhood, I'm not learning much. Then I go on to seminary. Well, frankly, you can go through an entire, let's say four year MDiv, because you wanna wanna take it slower so that you you don't burn out in three. You can go through an entire four year MDiv program and not even have one class period on race, Mm, let alone a whole course. Right. You end up thinking, oh, this isn't all that important. Yeah. And then certain things, 
you know, chaos ensues. You're like, wait, what? And then you find yourself thrust into modes of chaos. At the same time, you're trying to love and care for people that are ill. You're trying to do premarital counseling, et cetera. So I say this because this gets into something that most people that have followed me will hear me say over and over again, modes of organized forgetting. Mm. Modes of organized forgetting. So certain communities um, will intentionally repeatedly present certain facts, certain narratives over and over and over again, while also intentionally overlooking, ignoring, setting aside other facts, other narratives, et cetera, et cetera. So that for me, most of my students that I'll teach, they don't know much at all about U.S. history. And then when we're in class together and we start reading basic primary text, like I've mentioned, um, Chief Justice John Marshall, and some of the, mm-hmm. the very racist things he says about indigenous people are like, wait, this is this is what's going what on. Saying like, that? Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. Or they read the Dred <laughs> yeah. Scott decision and they're like, wait, Roger Taney really said that everybody knows that the, that the Declaration, the Constitution were for white people and not for black people. It's like, mm-hmm. and he's yeah. trying to be an originalist. He's like, what were their right. intentions? Right. Yeah. So they're just this blows them away. They don't see that. And then they start asking questions like, well, how, how is it that those decisions shaped not only, for example, a state, but a city and a congregation and education facilities and visions of education, et cetera? Right. So, again, this is why I keep asking the question, what should, what should sanctification look like in this white supremacist racist quagmire? Yeah, it's not the exact same. Some of the things that we're facing, for example, are going to be importantly different than what we'd be facing if we were in Jim and Jane Crow, South Carolina, for example, in 1940. Right, right, right. But it's also at times more nefarious. And here's an example of what I mean. If you read this infamous quotation from Lee Atwater, he tells you, yep, after the 1960s, you can't throw around the N-word. But when you still want to maintain white power, what yep. you can do is talk in more abstract terms. That's mm-hmm. exactly what he says. He says, this is what we're calling the Southern strategy. Yes. Mm. And he gets informed by people like George Wallace and Barry Goldwater. Goldwater. And he's saying, oh, wait, how did you all play up all the, on all these racial animosity, all this racial hatred, all this racial tension, but without being explicitly racist? Mm-hmm. You're clearly doing it. Yeah. Ah, so folks like Atwater craft a strategy so that they can, and they're explicit about it, make the Republican Party the white man's party. Yeah. And so I say that because it's one thing to have right in your face, you know, this is for whites only, you know, coloreds only, these kinds of signs, heinous racist signs. It's a whole nother thing when you're getting this level of what, what uh, CRT scholar Ian Haney Lopez calls dog whistle politics. And I've yep. written about this mm-hmm. elsewhere. The thing is, you have multiple people that are chairman of, of the uh, Republican National Committee saying, yep, this is what we've done. So Michael Steele, for example, he's like, yep, for 40 plus years, he's saying this in about 2005, for 40 plus years, the Republican Party tried to be the white man's party. And I'm here today to tell you it was wrong. Well, now fast forward to last year and Michael Steele's like, yo, deuces, because if you're if, if the same folks are going to continue to support Trump and he's doing all the same kind of Southern strategy things and at times even more explicit, I'm done. Yep. But wow. I got to say this, though. We can't act like it's just the Republicans doing it. Now, they exactly. might be doing it more, exactly. right? But think about this. When Hillary Clinton wants to beat, who ends up becoming President Obama, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah, wants to beat, at that point, candidate Obama, what does she end up doing? She gives us a clip from one of Jeremiah Wright's, Dr. Reverend Jeremiah Wright's sermons, exactly. his famous Goddamn America clip. Yeah. She only gives you a little sliver and she plays on the racist trope of the angry black man. Why are you? And tries to play on way? the racist idea that, oh, you see, he's not 
President Obama. He's not really interested in the United States. And he's just this crazy black man. And maybe he is one of those crazy Muslims. And it's not just, for example, President Trump back in the day doing birtherism sorts of things. You get the you get the DNC doing the same sort of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So we you know, these are the levels of, of, of subtlety that we that we have to become attuned to if we're going to love God and neighbor better, if we're going to mm. resist and remediate all these forms of evils. And these mm-hmm. are the sorts of things that critical race theorists talk about and help us to understand. Right. I'm so glad you brought up the Lee Atwater and the Southern strategy piece, because I feel like this is a that's a huge disconnect between how people actually see explicit what I yep. what, what I call kind of like white hood KKK racism and yep. then uh, how racism works now in the 21st century. And, and, and he and Atwater, like you said, clearly actually laid it out. And what he said, he was like, you, you can't say nigger, 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 because it, it's right. like people are going to be like, that's racist. You have to do abstract yep. things that still essentially get you the same result without being as explicit because it's not socially Correct. acceptable right. to be that explicit anymore right, right? Right, right, right. and then yep. so now when you have people saying well racism systemic racism is not real because it's not explicit right 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 it's like well you don't get that you have also been kind of socialized under this strategy right. that blinds you from seeing the ways sure. that racism still sure. works in society via yeah. law and, and etc but yeah. uh go ahead kb yeah that's that's beautiful man i think um i think one of the things that i lament about um I, um, I lament about the sort of mainstream Christian experience in America is that we're often not unified by the fact that we do the same things. So mm. obviously folks are going to church and and perhaps they, they like to gather around some Christian event or conference or something like that. But that's not really what unifies a lot of the, the, the um, those who are claiming to be Christians mm-hmm. is not just so like the actions. Like we're not like, we are the people that are known for like serving the poor. We we're, we're the yeah. people that are known for being a a a sort of a place for the 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 displaced. Uh, it's not that that unites us as much as we hate the same stuff. Right. So when I think about having a conversation with someone who is questioning my fidelity to the gospel. They, they they don't want to know about how I'm loving my wife. They don't ask about how I'm serving mm-hmm. my church. They don't they want to know about how I'm empowering the poor. They don't. That's that's not what they want to know. Even now, they don't even want to know about your theology anymore. And 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 at the time it was, but even now it's not facts, even that anymore. Facts. I remember so many times, and and we'll save this for another conversation because we want to make good use of the time that we have with the right. doctor. But I remember. You will probably remember this too. I mean, us being out in the street sharing the gospel, and we would run into another group of Christians uh-huh. who were sharing the gospel. And here we are, ragtag, you know, mm. unchurched, Got being ourselves, mad urban. You know what I'm saying? Got on Timberlands Tim and boots, Nikes, stomping, and, yeah, right, chain right. swinging. So we sharing the gospel, and some other group of you know, Campus Crusade for Christ. Typically, it would be uh, a, a group of Anglo brothers and sisters right. that would come and meet us. And how many times this was happened often? All the time. Well, we would try to explain to them that we were out doing what they were doing right. and they would not believe they it. They wouldn't believe it. They would not believe Some it. Some of them so, would even try to preach the gospel to us. Like after I told you that I'm oh, out yeah. sharing the gospel, they're like, yeah, I get all that. But here I've had this happen more times than I can count. Where it's nice. like, there's no way that you and your face and what you bring here yeah. is doing what you should be doing. So when those conversations proceed, then it gets to the point of absurdity because we're like debating. They begin, they, I've noticed that folks go to, the, the, the tell-all is, who do you hate? Right. So then you start talking about, did you, you know, what are your thoughts on Barack Obama? Right. <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts on Karl Marx? Mm-hmm. You know, what, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on now in current day? 
It's what is your thoughts on critical race theory for a lot of Christians. And yep. Yep. what we have found, which I refuse to be bullied into, I refuse to be bullied into hating something uh, that is uh, in a lot of ways, not the threat that you're making it to be. Right. I, you're afraid, but I'm not. I'm right. sorry. And it, you're not going to, I'm not going to like adopt your fear so that you can see me as more faithful to Jesus. Here's my question though. This is my setup for the question. When you encounter people that would hear you say something remotely positive about Karl Marx. I just mm -hmm. saw on Twitter last week a prominent Christian leader praising Hitler yeah, I for saw, running I saw that. the Marxists out of his country, in, for, out of the Frankfurt School, yeah. into the United America. States. So Hitler was trying to put his foot down to save Germany. Totally missing the context. First of all, Karl Marx started writing because he's watching his friends and families live in their own excrement. Right, exactly. He said, it seems like capitalism isn't working the way they said at, it was. At the hands of ruthless capitalism. Yes. Right. Yeah, people are Capitalism dying. now is killing kids yes, to make money. children are literally working 12, seven-year-olds. Right. My son is seven, right. working 12 hours straight. Something's wrong. So he's trying as... <laughs> anemic or incomplete that might be right he's trying to fix a problem but folks don't even recognize that there's a problem but that's not my point <laughs> the, the, the point that i'm making though is for those who will come to you and say oh he said marx he said critical he said theory oh he said race and he also said and race. he said race <laughs> and he said white supremacy now we know who we're dealing with right now yeah. what is your kind of response to those who for, and I mean this as mercifully and graciously as I, I can put it. I mean, it's coming from mercy, even though it won't sound very merciful. Those who are sort of projecting their lack of knowledge on you, they're, they're, they're sort of projecting their ignorance on you. How, what, how do you sort of deal with that as one who seems to be completely confident in his identity in Christ and his identity yeah. as the actual scholar and, 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 uh, of, of these issues? How do you deal with the layman? Because that's where a lot of folks are. A lot of folks are in our comment section right now, furious that you have not shown your fealty and allegiance to hatred and complete abandonment of anything that a critical race theorist or, or Karl Marx or whatever it may be could bring to the, to the table. So how do you sort of respond with that audience or that group of people? Yeah. So I got to say this, y'all. I got some Cornell West in me. Oh, I, I love Cornell <laughs> right. West. I got some Cornell West in me. I love the people. Yeah. I love the mm. people. I don't do anything that I'm doing to build empires. Mm. I, I, I got colonized family members. I, I, I know how that is. I don't care Why? about that. I don't care about what I call the white cheddar. I don't care about the white limelight. I am trying to be with the least of these, as my Savior told me in Matthew 25. Say and that, that means I'm going to be with the poor and rural whites. And that means I'm going to be down with the folks in the hood and then the Grove, as we would have said in New Jersey. And that means I'm going to be down with mi gente in Borican. And I'm going to do my best to promote my neighbor's well-being. Mm -hmm. That's what I care about the most. And I know this, my savior is the king of a kingdom that's full of mercy. Oh. Amen. In fact, I look at those beatitudes and one of the things I see is blessed are the merciful. Yes. They will receive mercy. And part of what Amen. happens when you're trying to be merciful is you enter into the sufferings of others. Right. You enter into the sufferings of others. This is something going on again in Matthew 25. In fact, Matthew, uh, that gospel is so rich in the consistent presentation of mercy. If you do a word search on something like Bible Gateway, you look on mercy, you're like, oh my goodness, this is a huge theme in Matthew. Oh, yes, it yeah. is. Because the kingdom of God is a merciful kingdom. Here's part of what I, where I want to go with that. You see, when I was interacting with Mama and I saw how her being steeped in Jim and Jane Crow harmed her 
Mm. What I didn't think was, my gosh, why don't you just get a proper education and move on? What I thought is, I love you. Wow. I love you so much. And I want to help you to be able to love God and neighbor better. Yeah, and yeah. I know that right now you've been socialized and habituated into modes of white supremacy. And I know that the gospel, brother, that might preach a bit. I know that the Come gospel on, isn't only about individual salvation. It's also about cosmic redemption. I know that my savior has come to liberate the poor, the oppressed. I know that my savior has, by his blood, purchased yes. freedom in many senses. And so I know that the spirit of God, it's the spirit of liberation. There's the spirit of sanctification. There's the spirit of justification is at work in you, mamma, and mm -hmm. is at work in me. Yeah. So the question I'm asking is, how can I enter into your sufferings? Because one of the things that's going on in this case with mamma, she didn't recognize that she is suffering from all the lies and all the vices that come with white supremacy. Mm. All of it. Right. So I'm asking, how do I love and care for mamma? This sure. is why. It's one of the reasons why I started I started studying critical race theory, right? Critical race theorists aren't like, just hate white people. No, they're actually giving you resources to understand how you and some of your racialized white neighbors, or if you're racialized white yourself, or how did you come to hold some of the views you have? How did you come to live in some of the places you had, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm asking, okay, how do I love mama? How do I love the poor whites that she's showing me? How do I understand modes of exploitation and oppression that are yeah. that are continuing to bear down against me in Puerto Rico? This is one of the key questions I have. So then when when folks, some folks will say, for example, well, don't you think that CRT is opposed to the gospel? Again, I mm -hmm. want to go back to a basic question. What do we mean by the gospel? Message. Come on the gospel mm -hmm. is not just Jesus in my place. Of course, we're going to discuss the gospel's good news about some like vicarious atonement. Sure. That's not all it is. I mean, Paul tells us that creation is groaning and awaiting the second coming of the Lord because Christ purchased, again, cosmic liberation. Yes. In fact, as I'd like to say, even James Henley Thornwell, another South Carolinian who <laughs> yeah. defends chattel slavery, says, oh, of course, Jesus is a liberator. Of course, he's, come, he's going to put an end to slavery of yes. all kinds. The question is, when? Yes. He has a certain already not yet view. So it's not even so much for Christians, a question of like, well, should we be opposed to oppression? Should we be for liberation, et cetera, et cetera? A lot of times this, this, the, the debates get teased out in terms of when and what's going to be your focus. And I'll say this, you know, as one that's read a lot of Calvin, he's got what's known as duplex gratia Dei, the twofold grace of God. So you get justification and sanctification. Mm, so you're right. made right with God, but you're also being conformed to the image of Christ. So mm. you're made more and more godly, or we could talk about uh, a key Latino theologian, C. Rene Padilla, he talks about um, a vision of what he calls Mission Integral, so integral mission, where he says, look, Christian the vision of Christian salvation is like two wings of an airplane. There's mm. one wing that's about how you're going to be saved and, as it were, made right with, with, with God. But then there's right. this other wing that's about how is it that God is empowering you to promote godliness, to be salt and light wherever you are. Right. And so, of course, he's going to somebody like Padilla is going to say somebody like Calvin's going to say, of course, our visions of the gospel have tremendous social implications. Right. Mm -hmm. And if we're asking now to get back to that question, I said, I, I'm trying to answer. What does yeah. sanctification look like in a racialized world? What does that sanctification Calvin talked about? What does that sanctification that Padilla is talking about? Hermano Padilla. Yeah. Well, OK, now I'm going to be drawing on some of the, the, the insights from folks like critical race theorists and other, yeah. other race scholars um, to try to answer that question. But this brings me to something else. I think this is very important to see. 
the church has historically, you'll find, you'll find a pole within it. And mm-hmm. here's what I mean, a continuum. There are those like Clement of Alexandria, good old brother, who says, mm-hmm. all truth is God's truth. Mm. All truth is God's truth. Yeah. Right. So as long as something's good, right, true, and beautiful, yep, we want to endorse this. We want to learn from those that are championing these positions, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But you also find some that kind of go into a, almost at times like a Tertullian, like, or even maybe an Irenaeus like view. Like, no, no, no. Anything that's not immediately in the scriptures, like we're, we're going to hold at bay. Right. And we're going to be suspicious of. And so right. I, I want to I know, you see these two, these two poles of a continuum coming up in, in, in church history over and over and over again. And I see this playing out, frankly, in some of the CRT discussions. Mm. And it reminds me of how important it is for somebody like me to do retrieval work and to learn from the saints that have gone before. So one of the reasons mm. I did a dissertation on Thomas Aquinas is I mm. wanted to make an extended yeah. stay with with a with a with a brother who tried to do justice to a whole range of voices when frankly what he inherits is a cacophony. So mm. he's like, okay, how do I learn from Plato? How do I learn from Aristotle? Yeah. How do I learn from Augustine? How do I learn from right. Seneca? How do I learn from Cicero? He wants to do justice to all of his neighbors. Yeah. And he ends up saying, okay, here are some things we can accept from Aristotle. But for example, when Aristotle says uh creation's eternal, Aquinas is like, no, ex nihilo, he's wrong there. But right. Aquinas says, he's got some great things to say about virtues and vices. Right. It's that kind of nuanced wow. engagement yeah, yeah, yeah. with what we can call bodies of knowledge or different disciplines that you're going to find me operating with. Yeah. And, and, and final point on this, yeah, I think sometimes the reason I'm so at home in that mode is because my life required it. Mm. And how in the world am I going to love mama and love abuela? Yeah. I got to right. make extended states. I got to learn new languages. I got to learn cultures. I'm going to have to say like, look, there are all sorts of great things that I'm seeing in Mamaw's culture that I don't see in, in Oela's culture and all sorts of great things I'm seeing down in, 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 in Oela's culture that I'm not seeing in Mamaw's, et cetera. So there's a kind of when, when you're, when you come from these multi-racialized families and, and especially when you have to do a lot of the, as it were, the grunt work of trying to figure yeah. out the craziness. That's a lot of patience that you develop. Yeah, bro. right. And, yeah, and what brother. you become so interested in is understanding. You want to understand how it is that Mamma sees what she sees. How does Abuela see what she sees? What were their right. life stories? What are the sufferings that they've had? How do you enter into those sufferings? What are the joys that you should be celebrating with them? It's never just the sufferings, but it's always right. the sufferings, right? right? Always those two. So now when I turn to somebody, let's say the, the, a CRT scholar like Richard Delgado or Kimberly Crenshaw or Derek Bell, I'm saying, okay, I want to understand you. I want to understand your positions. I want to learn from you. I want to see what's good, right, true, and beautiful in what you have to say that I might not have seen otherwise. So I come with expectations. Right. Right. And again, this is in part because I I had to growing up. Yeah. There are nasty things to see in in Mama. There were nasty forms, for example, of racist colorism in in Oela because Uh white supremacy is not just one form. You don't just get Anglo white supremacy. You have modes of what I like to call Iberian white supremacy. So coming from Spain and Portugal, uh, which is one of the reasons why when, when I told Oela that I was black, she was like, Como? Said, what? <laughs> what? I, don't, I don't think so. Like, no, 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 no. That's not what we've been working towards down here. Yeah. It's like what we've been working towards. Yeah. Right, right. Oh my. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's they're nasty things, things to resist and remediate, but also beautiful things. Right. Things to understand, things to cultivate, things to cherish. And if I may, things that I believe the spirit of God has been at work in producing for a long time. So yeah. I want to make sure that I'm staying in step with the spirit. 
right. as the spirit is moving. And I'm trying to understand these realities through a, you know, a biblically informed perspective, recognizing yeah. that I'm a coming to the scriptures from a social location. I'm going to yeah. see some things. Well, I'm not going to see other things all that well, which means I need the whole church to help me to see better. Amen. Right. Right. Amen. I, th- I think it's great that you also talked about how uh, Aquinas pulled from different places. and was able to take the meat and leave the bones because Number one, it, the, 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 the part about this that I find so funny is that good, I've seen evangelicals, especially those in more reformed circles, they have done that with almost with a lot of different things. Sure, yeah. sure. You know what I'm saying? Including yeah. philosophy, right? Oh, yeah. Like I've, I've seen evangelicals uh, pull stuff from Plato. I've seen them uh, pull stuff from Kierkegaard. I've seen them, I mean, yeah. all different, and, and they could take the meat and leave the bones and even teach their courses that way. And, and, and I think that they understand it to a degree, right? But I think that it's so weird that when we want to take the meat and leave the bones from racial scholars, when it has something to do with race, then it's off limits. Sure, sure. Then it's yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. no, we can't do that. There's no way that, you know what I'm saying? It's a slippery slope at that point. Sure, you know sure, what I'm saying? Sure, sure, I want to respect your time, brother, and um, and certainly have, have more discussions with you on this subject. Oh, I yeah. just uh, have rarely heard someone talk about it so insight talk about these issues so insightfully mm. um, and, and with such conviction, but also just drenched with a, a heart for people. It's pastoral, mm. it's merciful. Um, it is uh, it's sacrificial in a lot of ways yeah. because yeah. leader servant leadership is uh, that which deals in sacrifice. And a lot of these conversations for folks who are coming to the table, not having simply thought deeply or read widely about them, but they've also experienced it. This has been my life. I was Mm -hmm. six years old when I uh, came alive to race. I I remember where I was standing Mm. in the apartment in front of my mom and her boyfriend when I realized at six years old, no CNN, no no critical (laughs) race theory. No Hillary Clinton. No Hillary Clinton. (laughs) No liberals. Uh, six years old, I looked my mom dead in her face and said something to the effect, it is not my advantage to be black. It's not. I said, mom, in class all year, the black kids have to sit at one table and all the other and the white kids sit at another table. We're always police. We're thrown out of the classroom. I'm spanked every single day. I know it's not that I'm a bad kid. My mom was like confused. Why is he always in trouble? Every single day, his teacher has something negative to say about him. And but at home, I'm minding my manners. I'm right. I'm, I'm I'm doing my chores. I'm 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 a I'm a firstborn child. Firstborn firstborn children are are often rule followers right. and, and are trying to please their their mm-hmm. their their parents and live up to expect. My mom knew that's who I was. My family knew who, that's who I was. But that's not who I was being portrayed as school right. at school. I was not being portrayed that way as when the teachers talked to my to my mom and, and it hit me. It, it was. I was going through, I mean, crying daily, not just because mm-hmm. I was getting spanked almost every day because I was getting bad marks every day, but I also was never allowed to go in the treasure box. I was 26 mm-hmm. years old talking to my mom, my wife as she was dropping me off at the airport and I broke down in tears as a grown man mm-hmm. saying all I wanted to do was be seen as equal right. and yeah. get to go in the treasure box and I did yeah. something good. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I, I would be trying to win the approval of my teacher and I just could not do it. And I, I again, like I said, I was six years old. I remember where mm-hmm. I was standing uh, when I was talking to my mom and her boyfriend. I said, it must not be good to be black. Can I be white? Right. Six years old. 
And so I'm bringing that to the conversation. And I'm also bringing the fact that these things are widely experienced in, by other folks yeah. and that it's a perpetual issue that I keep running into the current day. All of that's a high context for me. I have a high context to this conversation. Yeah. But yeah. the heart for God and the heart for his people and the, heart, and the belief in his promise that he will indeed redeem the entire cosmos. Amen. Mm -hmm. That's a word. Leads me to say, though I have a high context and you have a low context to this. Right. All you hear is you're calling me the KKK and, and, and complaining about everything. That there's a sacrifice that I'll take even in that, brother, mm -hmm. and say, yes. your ignorance is not going to become the occasion for my hate for my dismissal of you, Amen. for my attacking you, for, 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 for my sort of, you know, getting at a place where I'm trying to slander. No, 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 no. I'm still going to love you. Right. That's powerful, brother. Oh, yeah. That's Amen. powerful. Which is a powerful thing you just said to Amen. us. Amen. Thank you. And, and yeah. I think it's a word for us today. I'm going to give you the last word, brother, and then we will, uh, yeah. we're going to conclude the podcast. I appreciate that. First, let me, let me thank you for sharing, KB. I know that stuff's hard. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's, it's painful. And it's so challenging to know that racial trauma follows you all the days of your life. Yeah, yeah. Now, the yeah. Lord is also healing and liberating. That's right. And redeeming. That's right. But as you were sharing, I was thinking about that same teacher from the sixth grade who said, you're only here for racial diversity numbers. That haunted me. I wondered that I only get into Grove City for racial diversity numbers. I wondered wow. that I only get into Texas A&M for racial diversity numbers. I won a teaching award at Baylor. I wondered wow. that I just went it for racial diversity numbers. Hmm. I won a dissertation award. I wondered that I only win this for racial diversity numbers. And I remember, I remember walking across the stage. I'm about to get what's called hooded, uh, which is hmm. not KKK kind of hooded, right? This is when you get, <laughs> when you get you're, not, you're not about to be a grand wizard. That's not oh, what is no. getting ready to happen. That's right. That, that, not at all. Not at all. So when you, when you get your PhD, when you walk across the stage, there's what's called a hooding ceremony. So they put on that, that part of the regalia, this hood piece. And it's, you know, it's a very powerful moment. But as they're calling my name and, and, the, and the, 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 the person that announced actually got Cartagena right. I was like, yo, this nice. is great. This like pretty much never happens. <laughs> yeah. But as they're calling my name, I'm walking across the stage and I go, did I only get this because of racial diversity numbers? Wow. And I remember ceremony's done. I'm embracing my mom and my dad and, and, and my, my abuelos are there. My abuelo, my abuelo. And my mom comes up to me and she says, we showed that sixth grade teacher, didn't we? Message. Wow. Here's what I want you all to see. For both of us, that racial trauma kept on keeping on. Mm, right? Mm. So there's an important sense in which we were still beholden to this racist metric. Yeah. Right. And, and still, still struggling to experience some of the celebration and some of the freedom because of what that one teacher did to me. Mm over the yeah, course yeah, of an yeah. entire school year. Wow. And one of the reasons I want to share that is because I think it's so important in these discussions to, as you were saying, to realize we're coming from different perspectives, but the call yeah. is going to be in different life experiences. The call is going to be to love our neighbors in their particularities. So bro. some of us are going to have to love on some folks that are like, like me and KB and we're like, well, all right, hold on. Tell me, what was it like to grow up as you grew up? What's it like to be the recipient of so much racist abuse? And right. others are going to be more like, man, mom, and they're like, we, I, don't, I don't get this at all. And the call is going to be, okay, tell me about, you had asked, tell me about your story. How do I love and support you? What are the yeah. things you see that I don't see? What are those things you're not seeing that I do see? And we're called to journey with one another. Yeah. I'll close this way then. 
You see what I'm saying? It's very much in a Pauline register, isn't it? If one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Yes. As Christians, we don't get to say, well, I'm just going to take care of me and mine. Our call is to love all in the body of Christ. Our call is to love all of our neighbors. And this requires patience and understanding, a constant requesting of the spirit to give us wisdom, to know how to navigate all these forms of racial tension, all sorts of forms of organized forgetting. Not because we want to have more info, right? Who cares about being a clanging gong? In fact, that's what we don't want to be. We don't want to be puffed up with knowledge. What we want is understanding that we can love God and neighbor better. Brothers and sisters, this has been Southside Rabbi. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Meansy. Yes. We love y'all dearly. Peace.